Amen. If you would, take your Bible tonight and let's begin in Genesis chapter 4. We'll be there in just a moment. Genesis chapter 4. And um, I'm going to work our way through some more of these questions. This will be the last night that we do this particular thing, walking through some of these questions that we've submitted as a congregation or brought even in as members and others have brought in and kind of walked through those. Had a couple other plans for tonight. Actually, this is the second time we were going to have a split session this evening. Um, had someone actually coming in from out that was a husband and wife that were coming. They're going to be teaching a couple different things. But uh, like many in our congregation that are battling sickness, there was some illness that did not allow that tonight. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 4 tonight to start in you don't have a full note section, a handout like we do, but if you want to jot some things down, anything that piques your interest or that you'd like to uh, keep track of or go back and study more or ask more questions on. Isn't it interesting how sometimes our questions spiritually lead to other questions quite often? And I think that that's a good thing. I think that Jesus taught his disciples that. He was trying to teach them to think. He actually, you know, Jesus never really responded in criticism to his disciples, or short, or sharp, or um, scolding with his disciples when they asked him questions. In fact, quite the opposite. Very typically, he would give a teaching, or he would do an act, or whatever it may be, and if the disciples asked or questioned it, quite often, he expanded his teaching on it, or he actually gave them more to it. And so, asking questions is a good thing when we're seeking the answers from the right source, which is God's Word, and with the right mentality, which is to find God's mind on it, not to enter with our own thoughts and answers, but to enter with God's mind. So we've addressed a number of topics these last few weeks, and hopefully uh, tonight, the four or five that we cover will be helpful as well. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer together uh, at the end. And again, I hope we don't take that for granted, but time together as a church body, taking our uh, thoughts before the Lord. And so I want to look at a number of different ideas and and different things uh, from God's Word tonight. So let's ask Him to help us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Give us understanding and teach us from it. Make do in us the work that we can't do in ourselves and equip us to do what only You can do in this world. Uh, Like the disciples, even this morning, may we come to You and and admittingly understanding that we do not know it all and we do not know even most, but that we rely on You for how you will guide and use our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've covered a number of questions uh, these last few weeks. And you'll forgive me, I'll have to drink a little bit of water. My mom, I guess, noticed, and Dan was telling me this afternoon, noticed I was struggling a little bit at the beginning of the service this morning. I wasn't quite expecting it. We have had a, a lot of work done on our HVAC system in the last year or so, a number of different things have been done. They replaced belts and motor fans and different things a few months ago, and so that got the air blowing harder, but it wasn't blowing as warm as it should, and so they found that there was a circulator pump that was messed up, and so they replaced that last week, and I had not spoken since that happened. And when I got up here, the the hot air was literally just blowing hard right in my face and throat this morning. And I thought, man, I'm going to have to preach from the Christmas trees over there um, to to get my breath. Eventually, I was able to kind of get used to it. But I might have to um, come in here during the week and train, I think, to be behind the pulpit because you got both fans are right there. They're kicking 
this morning. But if you would uh, look there, Genesis chapter 4. We've talked about a number of questions these last few weeks, and uh, some of them deep, some of them uh, dealing with uh, questions or grief at times, some of them dealing with, oh, there's Jack. <laughs> We're going to show a video later of Jack <laughs> from the thing, but we will... Uh, We'll show you that a little later if it if it works. Uh, but Jack is in Finland, by the way. He's doing a good job there. Uh, but if you will, look at Genesis 4. A number of questions that we've addressed these last few weeks. Um, some of them dealing with grief. Some of them questions about the Lord and, and how He works in different, th- in different ways that are mysterious to us. We ask some hard questions that culture and society tend to ask. How is God good if bad things happen? Um, how is God a good God? Last week we talked a little bit about looking at some of the Old Testament references and to how is it that God commanded His people to drive out the Canaanites and that included the death of men and sometimes women and children and kind of drove out their society. We talked about how God is actually long-suffering. He gave those people more than 400 years to repent and they did not generation after generation. And so we addressed some of those. But the first questions that we've had each night have been a little more lighthearted. We'll do that again tonight. The first week we talked a little bit. There was a question about dinosaurs and there was a question about sports last week. This week, just sort of an intriguing question that doesn't hold a lot of spiritual weight necessarily to how we live our daily lives. But the question was kind of about the beginning of uh, mankind, and you have Adam and you have Eve, and uh, there are some that believe that Adam and Eve are symbols for more people, that Adam literally means man and Eve, uh, talking about being the mother of all or the woman, and that God actually created multiple people, and that this is just a reference to... I don't believe that. I think the Bible is speaking very specifically about two people that God created, there's a lot of other issues that you can get into in, in terms of, well, God created Adam and Eve. Does that mean all the men sin and all the women sin and all these different things? I think that God created one man, one woman, and that He had purpose. And the Bible doesn't tell us how long they lived in the garden before uh, they were expelled from it. The Bible doesn't tell us how long they lived just after, before uh, some of these things. But we know that they had kids. They had Cain and Abel. And the question arose, look at Genesis chapter 4. And look at verse number 14. So Cain murders his brother. He murders Abel. And if you would, look at what Cain says when he finds out his judgment from the Lord. God says he's going to put a curse on Cain. He's going to send him away from his immediate family that's there. He says, A fugitive and vagabond thou shalt be in the earth. Notice Cain's response, verse 13. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me. Out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass, notice this phrase, that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the question is, who are the people that are threatening Cain to slay him? There's also another question that talks a little bit, says that Cain went out, notice verse 16, he went from the presence of the Lord, dwelt in the land of Nod. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife. Well, who is his wife? Says she, that he went out and he found a wife there as well. Who are these people that are out there after Cain comes or after Cain, uh, or excuse me, after Adam and Eve are born, excuse me, after Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel, they're born. Where did all these other people come from? The Bible does not tell us specifically where they came from. Some, again, would say that this means that God created other people or that God created other generations of people. I think you run into an issue with that thought 
as sin didn't transfer from person to person just because they were on the earth, they would all have had to sin. The Bible really doesn't give us any indication of that. But again, we know that the early mankind, the Bible tells us that they lived not for decades, but for centuries, for hundreds of years. And the Bible doesn't give us any sort of explanation of time gap, how old was Cain, how old was Abel. They're obviously old enough to be adult men living their own lives, farming and doing the agricultural. Cain, we know, was old enough to be married. There's all these different uh, variables that go into it. The best explanation, I think, that we can give from Scripture is that Adam and Eve had a number of children, a host of children. And that early on in mankind, that those children intermarried, and they had children, and they had children, and they had children, and eventually you had to spread out amongst the generations of earth. We'd probably be amazed how quickly over, the Bible says, if you will, oh, in fact, let's look there. Um, look at Genesis chapter 4, verse number 25. It says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth, for God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom came slew, and to Seth there was also born a son. So it says that he had a son, and they had a son. And then notice, um, it goes on and talks about in chapter 5, we won't read it all for time's sake, it says this is the book of the generations of Adam. And notice in verse um, number 4, in the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. Notice, he lives 800 years after he has Seth. So all in the middle, there's nothing that tells us that they couldn't be having children. And, of course, we know the Bible doesn't... There's a lot of scientific things we could get into tonight on that, why the Bible discourages intermarrying between families. We know that scientifically, as human beings have progressed, we have actually quite the opposite of what evolution teaches. We have actually... Uh, developed genetic mutations throughout, and it's likely that when family intermarries that those become magnified. But if Adam and Eve were created by God, they would not have those. They wouldn't have had those, neither would their children. And so generation after generation, that's the explanation that we give there. It is not necessarily that God created hundreds and hundreds of other people. And we just don't know because he didn't um, tell us exactly who it was that he married or who that Cain went to. But that's the briefest explanation that we can give. Again, not something that we center on too long in general. Now, I want you to look, if you would, at Second uh, Peter chapter number 3. There's three other main questions that we're going to focus on tonight. And they're all very good questions um, that may take a little bit of time on each one. But I want you to look at Second Peter chapter number... Or, excuse me, First Peter chapter number 3. First Peter chapter number 3. When I get on these questions... My mind gets busy and I'm thinking from one to the next, so sometimes I speak too quickly. But if you would, look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse number 21. The question has to do with this. Verse 20 tells about how Noah was in the ark and he was prepared and they were saved that year by water, being in the ark, that they were lifted up from the destruction of the earth. Verse 21, the like figure... Whereunto even baptism doth also now save, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want us to think about this tonight because the question was posed, what spiritual role does baptism play in our uh, relationship with our salvation and with our God, and this is this is an important question. The question was actually posed in kind of this way: How do I deal with 
family members, friends, co-workers, or uh, those that I'm interacting with, that when I speak to them about spiritual things or when I speak to them about salvation, uh, their explanation to me, is, or, or what they come back with often is, well, I have been baptized. I have been baptized as a child, as a baby. I was baptized in this faith. I was baptized as a young person. I was baptized as a young adult. How do I speak to them that that is not enough? Or how do I introduce the fact that that's not enough for salvation? Baptism is a good thing. We shouldn't steer people away from that. It is part of the the display of our faith that God has changed our lives. One of the greatest divides between the Roman Catholic Church and I'll use the word loosely Protestant church, evangelical church, faith-based church in Scripture is the way that we understand how God brings someone, uh, saving grace into the life of a human soul. What way is that brought into their lives? Well, we as Christians, or by going by Scripture as we believe, would say that that comes by faith alone. That salvation is introduced into the life of a person by faith alone. And that by repentance from sin, faith through grace alone, that's transmitted into our lives and we are given salvation in that moment. And that is by faith alone. We would say that over and over and over again. And all the other things that come as a result of faith are made possible by faith, but are not part of it. They are laid alongside of it, but they are not a part of that faith that completes our faith. Baptism is not a part that completes our faith, but rather it's a display of the whole work that Christ is doing in us. And so we believe that we are justified by faith alone and not by any other act. We would say it's a result of, it's kind of the idea of uh, a, a tree. We would say that baptism, if our faith is like a tree, we would say that baptism, in my yard I have a couple oak trees that drop a billion acorns this year is what it felt like and all the acorns are falling everywhere. We would say that that's a fruit of that tree. My faith has grown up. What God has done with me produces these other things. Baptism is one sign of that. But rather, others would look at it as baptism is a branch of that faith. It's a part of that tree. And without it, it is not whole. In fact, that's what the Roman Catholic would believe. And many of the people that you hear describe, well, that their salvation is based in their baptism would be in a Catholic faith. There's a few others, but they would believe that the soul is essentially saved through the physical acts of sacrament, whether it is um, by baptism or by the Holy Eucharist, as they would describe. But it's administered by a priest or an authorized substitute. And the idea, in fact, I'll read for you. Here's from the Catechism, the Catholic Catechism. It says this, Holy Baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the Spirit, and the door which gives access to all other sacraments of faith. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as the sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and are made sharers in her mission by baptism as the sacrament of regeneration through water in the Word. The problem with that, that sounds beautiful. The problem is it is not biblical. That's not what Scripture teaches. Turn, if you would, to Galatians chapter number 2. Galatians chapter number 2. Galatians 2. And we're going to look at verse 16 in just a moment. We would protest that belief. In fact, that's where one of the core doctrines in which Protestants get their name. They're protesting 
these beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church, that baptism does not free us from sin, and it does not cause us to be reborn. We believe that if we want salvation from God, that by repentance and faith, God gives us that salvation. Whereas there is an other belief that says, yes, repentance and faith is necessary, but it is completed by the act of baptism. And there's a number of stretches in that. Again, some people baptize as children or as babies, and there's some even within evangelical churches that would baptize babies. They believe that it is in the same way that you and I are baptized to show the work that Jesus is doing in our lives when he saves us. They would baptize children or babies or infants to show that Jesus is keeping them until they come to an age that they can recognize. Again, a problem with that is it's it's not biblically taught. There's no example for us in Scripture. There's no precedent for us, for it, for us. And what is given to us in Scripture is baptism as a symbol of the work that Jesus does in us through the Holy Spirit. Why don't you look at Galatians 2.16? Because the Bible does not contradict itself, and this is a very clear statement. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul, when he's writing in Galatians, is speaking to people that were, were Jewish people that were believers of Christ and they were coming to others and they were saying, well, if you're now a believer of Christ, you have to also follow all these other Jewish laws and circumcision and a number of different things that they would sort of add to faith. Well, yes, you must have faith in Christ, but you must also have all these other things to be saved. But we believe, again, baptism is a demonstration, not a, not a intermediate that carries, it, carries salvation for us. Therefore, there's no other acts that can make this divine act of saving faith happen. So, back in First Peter chapter number 3, what is it that Peter is teaching us? Because it looks like he names this fairly plainly and explicitly. He says, First Peter 3 verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Was it speaking to? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> He's giving us this example in the verse before of Noah's flood and the rescue of eight people in the ark. Well, we know, notice what it says, that they were saved by what? Verse 20. What does it say they were saved by? The last word of verse 20. What did they say by? Water, okay? Did water literally, physically save Noah and his family? No. In fact, had they not been in the ark, water would have killed them. <laughs> they would have died. What actually saved them? The faith that Noah had in the truth that God gave him and the obedience and submission that he had by faith to say, I believe that God is telling me the truth, that destruction is coming, and my only way of salvation is obedience and submission to him. And so in entering that ship then, the Bible says that they were saved by water. What does it mean? That the water lifted them, lifted that ark up and kind of exemplified, lifted up what was actually saving them, the the physical ark, saving their physical lives, and their obedience and submission to God, saving them spiritually, their faith. And he says, in the same way that baptism is this picture of being saved from what is actually destruction. The water in Noah's story is actually 
it's a symbol of destruction and death. And when we are baptized, it's the same way. The water is a symbol of death or destruction. And it's saying that we were entered into death, but through Christ, we are raised up. It's simply a picture exemplifying what God does inside of us so that outside others can see we are submitting and conforming to what God has done. When Noah's ark was lifted up, they would someone if someone were living, they weren't, but if they could see it lifted up on that water and eventually up on top of that mountain, it was lifted up to say, as an example, look what God has done in these people. In the same way, baptism is saying, look what God has done in these people's lives internally. And they're showing it by outward means. You see there the rest of the verse. He even goes further. Does also now save us. Notice the parentheses. Not... Put it, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Notice he says this, baptism doesn't cleanse your sin, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. What does he say that baptism literally is here? That it's a picture of what God does to us in salvation. It does not cleanse our sin, but it allows us to stand right in good conscience before God that we have publicly declared what he has done in us. It's actually a beautiful picture. I don't know why God set it up that way. He doesn't actually ever tell us, this is, what, this is what gave me the idea for baptism. But it's His perfect will. It's His perfect way. But it is not His saving way of salvation. It's important to note that. I want you, if you would, to also flip in your Bible. We're going to address one, uh, two others tonight. And this is another good one. How do we handle it when employers... I want you to turn, if you would, to uh, while you're uh, looking there. Let's start in. Um, oh, let's start in First Peter chapter two. Just a page over to try to keep it easier for you. First Peter chapter two. How do you, we handle it when an employer supports a cause that is against the Bible? And that's a good question, because never in society or culture have businesses been asked to make public declarations of their moral ideas than ever before. Like, you go back and read 200 years ago, you know, and that kind of thing. Guy had a blacksmith shop on the street. People could care less what the blacksmith thought about anything else going on other than how well do you do ironworks. Like, that's really what people wanted to know. But in today and in our modern society, it's quite the opposite. You have to have a business and a business model, and you have to build, you have to have profits, you have to have income, there's expenditures, there's staff, there's all the parts of the business, but then there's actually also this relation to society that you have to have, it seems. And so more than ever, especially large businesses, corporations, seem to have to make not just statements on it, but actually have started to have to make actions toward these things. In some ways, our society and culture says that if you do not that your inaction is a statement that you're against this. You have to support us. And not just by leaving us alone, but you actually have to do something to support us. And if you don't support us, it shows us that you're against us. And so there's a number of ways and different things that uh, the public or society celebrates that we know that the Bible does not teach or is contrary to the will and to the Word of God. Just by way of example, I'm sure you can think of a few others. You could jot them down, maybe even your own employer, but some employers uh, celebrate a different aspect or different thought of marriage than God's Word teaches. 
whether it's homosexual agenda, agenda, whether it's gender identity and transgender thought and uh, supporting in that way, sexual identity, all sorts. That's a, that's a big one right now in the moment. Uh, there are abortion rights that has come ba- really back into the public eye in the last uh, few months for a number of different reasons and rulings. And there are businesses that had to come out and make statements. There were businesses that came out just after that that said, if our state says you cannot have this as an employer, we will pay for our employee to travel to a place that they can have this done and have these rights. There's actually people that came out and said that. So what do we do when the one that we work for or that employs us comes out with such outward um, contradiction to what we feel as Christians and what we believe from God's Word? And so sometimes we, we want a quick, what do we do? Do we as a Christian, are we obligated to quit when that happens? Are we obligated to step away? Are we obligated to voice our opinion in opposition? Are we obligated to protest? And it'd be great if we just had a quick and easy answer, just yes or no. It doesn't always exactly work that way in Scripture, and we're going to see some things. I want to give you a couple foundational reminders as we get started in a moment, and then we'll point out some practical thoughts. But here's foundational thought number one. Number one, non-Christians won't act like Christians. Does that make sense? People that do not follow God, people that are not of the faith or that believe that God's word is truth, are not going to live as those that do. That's actually, in some ways, like a good thing that our faith is calling us to live like God, who is different than us, who are sinners. And so, non-Christians will not act like Christians. So we can't lose sleep over the surprise that non-Christians won't act like Christians, that they will not conform to the character of God, because that comes by redemption through faith. So it's no surprise when those that we work with or those that we work for don't submit to the commands of Scripture, which is an authority that they don't acknowledge. So we can't expect that all the time. And while we're supposed to remain alert for opportunities to plant seeds, to help others grow, to bring people to Christ, there's some that won't share their Christian beliefs. Some It's an opportunity to do so. I want you to think about this. Culture has never had the authority to redefine sin. There are things that are absolute in our lives. So let me ask you this question. If an employer does some of these things, are we excused to sin? No, never. There's never an excuse given to us to sin. Even within Scripture where it tells us to conform and submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives, it still sets God's Word and God's will as the highest authority. And that we should never contradict or sin against. So, should we refrain from sinning? Yes, of course. Should we shine our light so that others can see? Yes, we should. Should we pray for the leaders put over us as they make Difficult decisions, yes, we should absolutely pray for that and for their salvation. Should we allow ourselves to have a bad attitude or to reject them or to mistreat them because of it? The answer to that is no. And look at 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 18. Speaking to Christians, notice what Peter says. Servants, employees, be subject to your masters, your employers, with all fear. Now notice this phrase, not only the good and gentle but also to the froward. Isn't that interesting that God's Word has something to say about this? He says, be subject to, meaning 
Be respectful toward. And here's my point with this. This verse shows us that there can be a coexisting. There can be Christians that work for people that are not. I think that's what this one thing that this verse is hinting at or getting toward. And we have to remember, again, non-Christians won't act like Christians. Number two, the workplace is not the compass for our soul. The workplace is not the compass for our soul. Meaning what your employer says does not mean that that's what you conform to. And it obviously doesn't mean that that's what you believe. Now, do we have biblical scriptural examples? And I teased about this last week. And I actually have it. So for your participation, I have candy tonight. I'm going to bribe you. Give me some examples of people in the Bible that were God-honoring, God-fearing people that worked under and served under cruel, wicked, um, sinful, contrary to Scripture, I guess you could call them employers, or masters. Who we got, Rob? Daniel, all right? Daniel literally worked for one of the most violent governments that ever existed, at least in how they began. You have Babylon got its roots in the Ninevites and how wicked they were. Remember the description that we read in Habakkuk last week of how violent uh, the the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were going to be and how wretched they were going to mistreat people? Said they treat people like animals. Remember that? Says they treat people like animals. Um, they have no respect for life, and they do all of this with the pride of their own idolatries in God. Yet Daniel served for decades within that, and he served under it. But we're going to look in a moment. Daniel didn't have to compromise himself. Uh, what else? What else? Yes. Joseph. So there, another good one. Joseph on many different occasions, actually, in his life. He, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, within the prison, and then Pharaoh itself. Have you ever read historically? Those of you that took the historical, the, the Bible history adult group that we did uh, a couple years ago, did you remember, or a couple last year when we, remember when we went through Egypt? <laughs> um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a very conservative-based um, government and empire. It was immoral, it was wicked, it was wretched. There's sacrifices, how they treated people. You know, so one person could die and the spouse would have to be killed or murdered to be buried with them. I mean, all sorts of wickedness. Yet Joseph somehow exists and lives within that culture, submitting to the authority that God placed in his life, but not compromising the authority that God was in his life. And that's a challenge as Christians. So let me finish with, is there any other examples before we move on? I'll give you, I'm not going to throw these from here. Do I have another one? Yes. Mordecai, right? Mordecai serves in a very backward society. You read about it. Or even, for that matter, Mordecai, even think Esther, right? Esther, is not, not, she wasn't there in an employee type fashion, but she is there and she's used of God. And think about how she got there, <laughs> Think about the circumstance in which she was placed into that position. And yet God used her, and he used Mordecai. Any others? Well, that's three pieces of candy. Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah got an opportunity for God's people that probably would not have been gotten had he not been serving in and under wicked people. Anybody else? That's four pieces of candy. I got eight, so, or six or eight, so I can give away at the end. All right. Now, I want to give you some practical advice that I came across. 
not original to myself, but just advice to Christians in the workplace. Number one, consider your proximity and your participation. That's how you can weigh it. Your proximity and your participation to what is evil and sinful. Because there's a difference between our employer or one that we're part of. Let's scratch the employer for a second. Your American government that you're a citizen of. Like, think about that for a moment. What we represent as a country in the last, well, really, we're sinners. So all throughout our uh, our time as a country, but particularly the last 50 to 60 years, what America has stood for, how is it that we can claim to be citizens in submission to a government that has made such anti-biblical declarations as it has? How can we do that? Well, we consider the proximity and the participation. Does this require me to actually participate in sin? And if that is the case, then the answer must be no. I'm not going to do this. And then the proximity to sin. Meaning, does this put this in my face, and I'm literally having to physically or emotionally dodge this constantly. Is this making me the face of this? Because there's a difference between somebody's company standing up and saying, well, we support such and such marriage rights, and, uh, homosexual marriage rights, whatever it may be, or we support abortion and, and women's rights as it would have been declared. We support that. There's a difference between that and the boss coming and saying, we're going to do a rally, or we're going to do, we're going to get this cause, we're going to raise money for this foundation, I want you to be the face of it, or I want you to participate in it, or I want you to help with those things. Some of you have even been confronted with those kind of things. And at that point, that is when we have to make the decision. We follow God, and we do not follow man. Number two, every job requires us to work in the presence of sin. We have to know that. Even, you say, well, what if I work at the church? We are all sinners. And so there's going to be aspects of temptation no matter where we go that we're not going to be able to thwart all modes of temptation. However, it's not realistic or fruitful to put ourselves in a position that constantly bombards us with temptation. That is a difference. You think about Joseph, the example that somebody gave a minute ago. Think of Joseph. He's serving Potiphar willingly in Potiphar's house. Potiphar, it doesn't give us a lot of description about him, but just based on his position within the kingdom of Egypt probably committing some sins and idolatry, even those things that were involved. And, and Joseph serves there. But when Potiphar's wife comes and in command to him, commits or tells him to commit immorality, that's when he decides, no, I, I serve God rather than man. So there's a difference between serving under someone who is sinful and serving someone who is bringing sinful temptation all the time into your life. And so you have to consider proximity and participation, the difference between just being around sin and being constantly bombarded with it. And then number three, you just have to seek wisdom from God. Uh, James chapter number one, of course, tells us to seek wisdom. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who give it to all men liberally. And I love this phrase, and upbraideth not. Meaning he, he doesn't reproach us for coming to him with questions. There's nothing wrong with not knowing the answer immediately to whatever it is that life brings in our way. Sometimes we have to pray and meditate and think and seek God's face through Scripture, spending time investigating what God's Word says, not just studying the reports and the statistics of how bad it all is, but studying what God's Word actually says. There's some questions. Does my job require me to 
participate in something against biblical conviction? Does my job require me to endorse something that goes against biblical conviction? Does it cause us to stumble? If I, will it cause me to stumble if I continue to work here? Have I pursued every available uh, opportunity to honor God with this situation? Have I pursued every available opportunity to opt out of this situation? So there's a number of things that we have to do to heed to the Holy Spirit. And hopefully that's a helpful place. And the, and the next one sort of ties or goes a little bit with this. I'm going to read to you something. And this will be our last question for the night. I'm going to read to you an um, article I came across, if I can find it here. Oh, let's see. Looks like I exited it. Turn, if you would, while I'm looking, to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter number one. Ah, yes, here it is. Boston University recently put out a uh, behavioral medicine guide for those that are employed by them, their students, and then as a model for um, mental health resources throughout the country. It says, contact. Here are issues that you can get help with. Mental health resources. Depression, anxiety, sleep issues, stress, adjustments, homesickness, Uh, Loss, grief, alcohol, drug abuse, attentional and relational issues, socio-political stress. (laughs) That is listed on Boston University's aspect of mental health issues that you can get and need support with. I don't know how you want to argue. I don't believe that socio-political stress is probably as prevalent of an issue as depression or alcoholism or anxiety or anything else that we may struggle with. But I read that to you to, to show you this. The world is boiling with this political stress around us, is it not? It is driving everything, absolutely everything. It's just a big ball that just keeps turning and it snowballs. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So a couple of questions had to do with how do we handle the political stress that's around us? How do we witness to someone that is in stark opposition to our political views or whatever it may be? How do we get past political conversations and speak to spiritual things? We talked about some of that in the last few weeks, but I just want to encourage you by giving you an example tonight. We're just going to keep it pretty concise. There's a book I came across recently. It's probably probably the best book I read this year. As I get to the end of the year, I like to rank everything in my year. What was the worst day of the year? What was the best day of the year? You know, whatever it may be. What was the best book I read? One of the better books I read this year is called A Non-Anxious Presence. And it takes and it says, look at the world and how stress and anxiety are boiling over certain things that are being pressed into us all the time. And how do we show a Christian testimony of this non-anxiousness about the world that's around us and communicate that to them? And um, how do we do that? Clearly, people are getting desperate about how to cope with anxiety because of political division. It's, it's an issue. It's all over our world. Well, Daniel, um, we preached through Daniel in this last year. And, um, like I do with several of the books that we preach through. I'll go back after we're done, read it again, and then feel bad about all the things that I think that we missed as we were walking through it. But if you will, look at Daniel chapter number 1. Daniel 1. You know, there's four things 
dealing with the political stress of our nation and really the world around us. Somebody's got something to say about everything, right? And how do we handle that? There's got to be an opinion about everything. How do we deal with that, especially when it's in contradiction to us? Number one, you know, let's just look at it from the example. Can we, can we just quickly establish that Daniel dealt with this too? Like horribly dealt with this? Again, we won't go into all the wickedness of Babylon and the contradiction and the different things that are involved. But I just want you to think about what Daniel did. Number one, he remembered God. Number one, remember God. Daniel chapter 1, those verse 1 and 2. In the, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Notice this phrase. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now remember, who most likely wrote the book of Daniel was Daniel. There's some places where he refers to himself in first person. But notice what he says in verse 2. Notice his perspective. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of the wicked king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And so as Daniel is plunged into, let's call it political turmoil, I would say that's the case. He's taken from his family. His national identity is removed. He is placed in the Babylon school of leadership. He is forced to do anything and everything that they want. He's told he's going to work there the rest of his life. His friends are taken, he's taken out of his physical land and placed in another kingdom that worships a different God, yet seemingly has immense, unmeasurable, unstoppable power. That's going to cause some conflict in Daniel's heart. And yet, here's how Daniel viewed it. He remembered that God was in control. And here he says, Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem, took God's city, and God gave that into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. That's how he viewed it. That's how he phrased it. And that despite all the pain and the torment that he saw in Jerusalem, it was not by accident. It was part of God's plan. Notice, Christians also feel like the world is out of control, like Daniel's world was out of control. But Jesus is on his throne. Anxiety flees in the presence of Christ. And when we fear a future, uh, an anxious person fears a future beyond God's control. A non-anxious person looks to the future and sees that God is in control. And that, that's easy to say, hard to do, is it not? And we can agree on that. That anxiety builds in our hearts when we look to the future and we look to a future where God is not in control. But we know that that's not what Scripture teaches. It teaches the opposite. So it should help us to remember the Lord regardless of the circumstance. Number two, embed yourself in Christian community. You say, well, where do you get that? Daniel didn't have a church. No, it's chapter 2, verse number 14. Embed yourself in Christian community. Daniel chapter 2, verse 14. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. <clears throat> and he answered and said to King Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? And Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Notice this phrase. Then Daniel went in, desired of the king that he would give him time, that he would show the king the interpretation. So Daniel's faced with a problem. Everyone's going to die if they don't get the king's command right. Notice verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Notice what Daniel does. When he faces turmoil, 
from someone that is over him, seemingly unceasing power and control. Where does Daniel find physical refuge? He finds it in the other believers that are surrounding him in his life. He goes to his companions and he says, let's seek and show God that we desire mercy in this situation. And we should attach ourselves. We can say we're going to remember God and go alone, but God's word never instructs that. We should attach ourselves to other believers. I came across this quote as well, as if you can tell some things that I've been reading about. It says, anxiety thrives in isolation. If you want more stress, spend more time alone, disconnected from others. Doom scroll with all the doors shut. The non-anxious person has a deep relationship with Christians who listen and will pray with them when life feels overwhelming. Christians are to remind one another of God's reign and encourage one another to stay calm and to stay faithful. And that's a good truth. I'll give you just a practical advice. Have a meal with other Christians and just focus on God. Just for a little while. Just have a meal that doesn't focus on everything else in the world, but come away from the world Invite them into your home or have them, whatever it may be, sit down with them at lunch or at a coffee shop and just talk about the goodness of God, that He is still enthroned and that He is still good. And God uses people to encourage other people. Last two. Number three, submit to God's will. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, we know that Daniel and his friends are facing uh, the fiery furnace. And then it says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They came and they had this center stage sort of showdown, but they are confident that their life is in God's hands and not the king's. Let me just say that as our world progresses, society, even our country progresses, I don't know what God... I hope that God brings sweeping revival to our nation, that millions are saved, and that we as a people turn and repent before Him. That would be wonderful. But if it does not happen, there's a chance we're going to face hardship in our lives because of our faith in Christ. And God calls us to remember Him. He calls us to bind together as Christians. But He also ultimately calls us to submit to His will. Their job is to remain faithful, even in preparation to die. And they believed that God was sovereign over the furnace, so He would be sovereign over their own lives. And if God is sovereign in the life of these humble servants, Daniel, great Daniel. But notice what they say. God can save us. If He doesn't, we still trust Him. Is that, the, is that what we communicate as Christians? God can change our lives. God can save us. God can protect us. God can turn our nation to Him. God can do all of these things. But if He doesn't, He is still good and faithful. It doesn't matter who is elected, who wins, or who doesn't. What matters is that God is ultimately on the throne. That brings us to the last thing, and we'll close tonight. Number four, we confess sin. Daniel, in chapter number nine, he's reading the book of Jeremiah. And um, we won't read much there for time's sake tonight, but he's, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, which is interesting. It's it interesting that Jeremiah is serving in the midst of all this turmoil, and he keeps confiding in his other believing companion and friends. He continually prays in private and in 
public. And he continually goes to God's word for the answer. He's a great uh, example for what we should be doing even in perilous times. And notice what it says. He was reading in the book of Jeremiah, verse number 3, And I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. Notice that's the fourth thing, is we just confess, continue to confess our own sin. When we're dealing with the turmoil and strife and issues of the world and the stress that's all going around us, God calls us continually to retreat back to our own private relationship with Him, examine ourselves, and confess and repent of our own sin. It's interesting that Daniel's reading in Jeremiah um, and as he's reading, he's re- Daniel's realizing that their end of their exile is coming. God's about to return them home to Israel. And he confesses his sin and he confesses the sin of God's people. It's interesting, he doesn't confess the sins of Babylon. He, he doesn't cry out against the culture and society and rage against those that are sinful, but rather in mercy, repents, or seeking mercy, repents of his own sin. It's a good example for us that when the stress of the world surrounds us, we remember God. We confide in the Christians that God has brought around us. We submit to His will, and we trust Him, and we confess our own sins before it. Right, we're going to have a, a word of prayer and be dismissed. I kept you a little longer than normal, and I want you to be able to uh, do whatever you can with the kids down there at the end for tonight. But um, we're just going to close with a word of prayer and then I'll be dismissed. But hopefully these have been helpful to you, and we'll come back next week with a little bit different. I don't know, do we get that video? If not, we can show it Wednesday. You got it? All right, let's try it. We're going to try it. This is a video Jack sent. We're going to see if it came through.